Right now on Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast, we're about to get into the challenges and opportunities in educating engineers for a rapidly changing world. Any type of person can make a good engineer. That's the first thing I would say. There's something there for everybody. Even if you end up in the wrong discipline of engineering, it's so easy to switch to another discipline. If somebody is interested in a particular area of engineering, they're more likely to succeed. Motivation beats knowledge any day. I think that idea of just being a problem solver, then you can fix everything else. We will give you the skills to deal with the rest of it. Hi there, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to Amplify, the Engineer's Journal podcast. One of the amazing things about engineering is that things are constantly changing and for many engineers it's a part of their psyche to keep up with the changing times. But how are things changing and what is it that fresh graduates coming into the business have been learning? Or indeed, how have they been learning? And how can we as qualified and experienced professionals keep up? To chat about this today, we have two hands-on leaders in the field. Firstly, we have Una Began, Head of Civil Engineering at the Technological University in Dublin. Una has a lot of career experience working as a consulting engineer in Ireland and abroad. Today at TU, she's focused on how teaching techniques can improve professional skills. Una, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. Also with us is Maria Kine, who, after working as a civil engineer for over 30 years, is currently Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment in the Technical University of the Shannon. Maria, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dusty. Just before we get into the academic side of things, you, you both have a huge amount of real world engineering experience. Una, perhaps you can give us a, a quick synopsis of your career before you ended up in TU Dublin. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I guess I was quite lucky. I, I knew from when I was around 14 years old, I think, that I wanted to be an engineer. So um, in that sense, I was very committed and I did my degree in civil engineering and worked as a consultant for 20 years in Belfast and then London and then back in Dublin. So I've had a great range of experience, worked on some fabulous projects with great teams over the last 20 years or so. And tell me the story of why you were dragged back into university life. Yeah, that's a funny one. Uh, I'm not sure if Maria's story is the same, but um, I loved being a consultant. I never saw academia in my life plan. Uh, and then the recession hit. And of course, everyone gets nervous in the recession. And I had been doing some part-time lecturing in the evenings while I was working. And I just really enjoyed it. I got a great sense of job satisfaction from mm. it. So when a, a job came up, I applied for it and was very happy to come in as a as a, an assistant lecturer originally into TU Dublin. So that was the crux. That was about 10 years ago. And Maria, uh, yourself before TU of the Shannon? Um, I was, my professional experience began as a civil engineering, in the civil engineering consultancy in the UK before joining uh, NUIG as a civil engineering lecturer. So I then moved uh, on to Limerick and became a lecturer in project management and then back to TUS, uh, where I started as a lecturer and then became head of department and finally dean of faculty. Well, listen, tell me, in universities today, would you say that the process of teaching has changed a lot in the last 20 years? 
Yes, I think the teaching has changed considerably in the last 20 years and in many ways. I suppose the most significant is that there was a time when the lecturer went up on the podium and gave the lecture and the students took what they could from it. Nowadays, the lecturers see themselves as facilitators of learning, where they're helping students to absorb the knowledge. And and so a lot of the information that used to be transmitted by lectures previously is sent out before the lectures and they have that available to them up in virtual learning environments and such as Moodle or Blackboard. And the students have the information. It's absorbing and uh, understanding and doing the engineering that we focus on. So the practical skills and getting the students to understand and comprehend and do uh, calculations so that they can understand what they are learning. And so the lecturer becomes more a facilitator of the knowledge, skills and competencies. So it has gone from being lecturer driven lectures to more lab lectures, where a lot of the lectures now are part of laboratory uh, experiments and laboratory classes where students have a, as part of the lecture, they might work on a piece of equipment if it's in the mechanical engine or electrical engineering areas. Um, so it's that sort of a change. So it's kind of upside down since it's since back in the day when I, when I was uh, in a learning environment where you kind of do all the, the paperwork and the books at home uh, and then you go into the class and, you, and you're able to ask questions and everything with the professors, pardon me. Uh, Una, uh, how do you see things have changed in the last 10, 15 years? Yeah, I would agree with Maria. Um, it used to be very teacher-centred. It was all about what the teacher did and it was that idea of the sage on the stage. And it's very much changed to a student-centred concept now where it's all about what the student does um, and, and the terminology, I suppose, is the guide on the side, that that's the role of the lecturer now. And one of the things I think that's interesting about that is back when I was at college, the professor had all of the information and I sat in class trying to write down all of the notes to get that information. And with the internet now, information is available at our fingertips. And so we're trying to expose our students to ways to develop what we might call critical thinking skills being able to discern what's important or what's not important or what's accurate and what's inaccurate on the internet because that freely available information is both a challenge and something to be careful about. Have either of you noticed uh, an influx of AI-generated papers being handed in? Uh, There's a lot of talk about it and, and some lecturers have seen it and their view basically is that it looks wrong. You know, that they either know the students work from either being with them in class or elsewhere. And when it comes to something like that, like the, the chat GBT or other assessment tools come in, then it looks wrong to the lecturer. The lecturer can recognize for the most part. But they have to, I mean, there will be dramatic changes to assessment methodologies in the last year or so, so that you either have more ORs or more um, individually assigned projects where the each le- each student would have a slightly different problem to analyze. So AI and digital tools and internet is is one thing. How have things changed in the last 10, 15 years with collaborating, collaborating between yourself and students or students collaborating with each other? Una? Yeah, I think there's been much more recognition in recent years about the importance of collaborative working and multidisciplinary working and and working in teams. 
And certainly there's an awful lot of our modules now which have group projects in them. And we provide scaffolding to the students to help them learn how to work in a team. Um, I have a few of examples of that that we could maybe talk about later. But um, one of the aspects that we might talk about is the focus, I guess, between the balance of what we might call technical engineering skills and other skills, which we might call professional skills or non-technical skills. And they are quite important as well. So it's important that we expose our students to opportunities to practice those skills in addition to the technical skills. Collaborative working, multidisciplinary working are two good examples of those. Yeah, um, the Engineers Ireland accreditation process uh, highlights the need for both the professional and the technical skills. So when they they accredit uh, engineering programs, they're looking for both uh, and they're looking for a student's exposure to both the technical and the professional skills. Now, one thing I always hear about Ireland, I think it's been beaten into me as a child, is that we are the land of saints and scholars and that we do doctors and engineering and universities better than any other country in the entire world. Um, what What is the reality? I know, I know we do have a good reputation, but how, how are courses here uh, actually assessed internationally? Um we are part of Engineers Ireland and our programmes are accredited by the relevant professional bodies, the engineering and construction programmes. They, in turn, are assessed by the International Engineering Alliance, where we have international accords, um, such as the Washington Accord for Level 8 Engineering Programmes, the Sydney Accord for Level 7 Engineering Programmes, or the Dublin Accord for Level 6 Engineering Programmes. And each country who are part of these signatory uh, agreements, they are assessed that their level eights are similar to ours. So we're our level eights, our level eights, which would be the honours degrees, they are on par with what is taught and how it's taught in in Australia, America, Canada, throughout the world anyone who's part of these international engineering agreements. And most countries in the world over the last 20 to 25 years have signed up to the Sydney Accord and the Washington Accord. And that has provided, to some extent, a harmonisation of engineering degrees and the standards, the graduate standards, which we call the graduate attributes. It sounds very high level politics when you're talking about all these big cities and accords and stuff like that. How do they actually kind of agree that the level eight course in one country is equivalent to one in Ireland? I'm an international reviewer. So what happens is that uh, three international reviewers from different countries go to, for instance, uh, I was on one in the in the UK there recently for the Sydney Accord and we visit three um, colleges for three. Sydney Accord was level seven, so it was the incorporate engineer in the UK. And we look at three programs that would be providing students with qualifications which they could use towards becoming an incorporated engineer. And we looked at all their learning outcomes. We looked at how these programs were accredited and we looked at the way are the way the programs are being examined, accredited, similar to the way we do it in Ireland and the standards, are they similar? And uh, we write a report then that goes to the IEA and they decide whether the UK, EC, the Engineering Council UK gets the accreditation for or gets to be a member of the Sydney Accord. And does this mean that you have to travel to Sydney? No, 
It's all online. Now, in the in the pre-COVID days, there was a time where you travelled uh, internationally, but nowadays it's it's so much more convenient to do something like that online. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> a trip to Sydney, I don't care how inconvenient it is. But uh, I mean, that's it's good though that there is a kind of a, a committee and it's people from different countries and regions, and and there is a consensus there, and that's how you're seeing how the courses are recognised internationally. However, things are changing so fast in the the world. How are the courses kept up to date? Well, it's all about accreditation criteria and the accreditation criteria change regularly uh, in relation to the needs and changes in in the wider world out there. For instance, the accreditation criteria of Engineers Ireland has have embraced sustainability in a new way. They've embraced engineering management in a new way in the latest revision, which was only a year ago or two years ago now. Can you give um, me an example of how did they did that? Um, they put in another program outcome, and each engineering program must ha- must have examples of how they teach that program outcome to students. Una, uh, let me catch up uh, with yourself because I'm thinking now, kind of the future and what's going to happen next. Um, what kind of skills do you think that engineers are going to need and to learn and to have another under their belt in the future? Um, I was recently involved in a, an Erasmus Plus, a European project called A Step 2030, and we asked that very question. So we held focus groups with academics, um, with students, and with industrial employers in four different European countries to really look into the future at what skills engineers would need to help solve the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals in particular. And what we find is that skills come out in sort of three funnels, let's say. The first was technical skills, which absolutely engineers need. Uh, the second was non-technical skills. And what we mean by that are skills like outward facing skills, people oriented skills, things like intercultural skills, collaboration, leadership, negotiation, and inward facing skills, things of things like critical thinking, life cycle thinking, systems thinking, ways of thinking. And the final funnel was about attitudes, their attitudes towards their worldview, global awareness, social responsibility, sustainability awareness, and also their character and ethical orientation. So things like, are they agile and adaptable, uh, open-minded? We ended up, I think, with 54 different skills that engineers need. So you might ask us later about the challenges of academia. I think that's one of them. Um, I was going to ask you about that now because, I mean, yeah, it's one thing talking about, you know, what the engineers need to learn. You guys need to teach it. So, so I mean, what new teaching methods do you have or technologies are you using to get these skills across? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting one because I don't think that one answer answers everything. I think we've got to go at, uh, at it with different um, approaches, I guess. Um one of the other projects that I'm working on is called Profess 12. It stands for Professional Skills for Engineering Students to Solve SDG 12. It's a ETA funded project with Ulster University as part of the North-South program. So we're trying to build connections between engineering students in the North and in the South. And as part of that summer school, we're looking specifically at opportunities for students to develop two things, one being the engineering skills to solve SDG 12, and also a clear focus on intercultural skills. Because I think one of the things of the future 
is that engineers can no longer just sit at their desk with their head down and do calculations. It used to be that case maybe 30 years ago. Now engineers have to be much more externally focused, aware of the social impact of their designs, and that requires a different set of skills. So this summer school that we're in the middle of designing at the moment, we're going to run workshops on the circular economy, um, things like debates on the SDGs to really help students develop those skills of speaking and collaborating and getting the message out there, much more than just engineering technical skills. Yeah, we, we also work closer with industry than we used to in, in, you know, 20, 30 years ago. We have greater links with industry. Industry need engineering graduates, so they're happy to work with us to try and um, give us the knowledge that we need and the equipment that we need so that the graduates, when they graduate, have the skills that industry require. So we have lots of new uh, ways of interacting with industry, such as the regional skills fora that were set up uh, in recent years, such as that we have an Explore Engineering, which was formerly known as the Limerick for Engineering uh, group. And that's where we have uh, the engineering industries in the Midwest region. They come together and they try, our mission is to try and increase the quality and quantity of engineers and technicians in the Midwest so that they are available for industry. So industry tell us what they want, what skill sets they need. And there is a big focus on the professional skills that engineers need, because most people who do engineering are quite good on the kind of the maths, the technical skills. They will naturally get that. But they want people to be more aware of the social skills and the professional skills. So how is this working out for everybody? Because um, it, it's not just a work placement or work experience kind of a thing. It's, it's obviously more advanced than that. In, in what way? Um, I think there's a couple of different ways. I, I might give you one example of what we call problem-based learning. So this is a Friday afternoon class with our first year engineers and they work in a studio. We break them into groups of about five or six people. And the problem is that they have to design a pedestrian bridge to span, I think it's six metres in a disaster scenario in a in a country that has just experienced, you know, an earthquake or something. Full stop. So off the student goes. They have to do research on what materials are available in that country. They have to do research on flood history so they can calculate the depth of the truss and how far it should be above the water level and so on. And we give them little mini lectures on how to design a bridge and, and that type of thing. But at the end of this problem-based learning, they get the opportunity to construct a full-scale bridge and we test it over the pond of Bolt Street. So it's fun, you know. And they really engage in the project because they're not sitting in a lecture theatre listening about stuff. So I think that whole idea of um, teaching them the skills to learn, look, learning to learn, they're, they're only in college for three or four years. That's only the basic foundation of what they're going to do in life. So lifelong learning is really important and they shouldn't constantly be looking at the lectures for the answers. They have to kind of take control and engage in their own learning. Um, So that idea of learning to learn. So that problem-based learning idea is one example that we use. Maria may well have more. Um, Keeping up to date with technological advances too is very important, you know, because um, there's new and emerging themes from time to time. There was renewable energy a few years ago, sustainable development now, climate action is growing. Um, 
precision engineering is a growing area. So it's keeping up to date with all the new technological advances in these areas is very important. So the students have the knowledge and know how to operate these machines or uh, BIM for the construction and built environment area. So or Costex for the QS area. So they're all new software companies. Uh, software comes out. It's in it's in vogue for a number of years. Then something better comes out. It's in vogue for a number of years, and so on and so forth. So you're all the time changing, improving, getting better systems that help us do our work, and it makes us more efficient. So if the tools are changing all the time, how are you able to cha- keep up with your teaching methods and the technologies that you are using to teach people how to do use these tools? It's, it's again, it's interaction with industry, interaction with professional bodies, interaction uh, with with students going out to industry. All the staff have connections with industry. They're doing research with industry, either through research projects at, at level eight or level nine. Students are in industry and the staff are working with industries and solving industry problems with the assistance of the students doing the research. So we have the example of you have to build a bridge in a war-torn country or a disaster area. Are industry people like here in Ireland that you are working with actually saying, do you know what, we have these interesting day-to-day problems, like there's a bog and we need to put a a warehouse on it and you need to figure that out. Are they coming to you with kind of problems like that and they're telling you that's the problem and we need it to be solved using A, B and C? Absolutely. And I think, as Maria said, that relationship with industry has got much closer in the last 15 or 20 years. And particularly not so much at first year where we're really just getting the engineering students in the door, but on their final year project where they're really going into depth and there's some research, we absolutely do joint collaborative projects with industry. And I think, as Maria mentioned, that's where that technological um, advancement and keeping up to date really comes in. Yeah. Now, each of you are tied with a specific university. Is this something just with the universities you're associated with or is it something that is across the board with uh, universities across Ireland? Yeah, I know there's a strong alliance with the IUA and there's a strong alliance with the technological universities. We've all known each other for numerous years and we meet regularly the heads of School of Engineering in the Institutes of Technology as was. Um, They all meet once every two or three months, share information, share learning. And that we found to be very helpful. And it's kind of information exchange across the university sector and, and the Institute of Technology sector as was. And just as Maria mentioned, actually, Engineers Ireland organize a coffee morning at the start of every semester. Uh, which is just an online coffee morning. And that is just a mine of information because we know all of the faces from around the country. We're involved in a lot of, uh, you know, through accreditation, through professional bodies. So that's a great place to hear what's going on and to realise that maybe your challenges are are shared by others. So, uh, yeah, it's a great network of people that I've come across. Una, let me ask you, because you have such a huge responsibility in your hands. Both of you have a huge responsibility in your hands. But uh, Una, you, because you're shaping how engineering is going to be taught in the future. And I love how you, Una, particularly look at uh, teaching and how people have different ways of learning. We all take things in different ways. Some people are good at listening. Some people are good at reading. Some people are good with their, their, their eyes. 
Can you give me some examples of new teaching methods and technologies that are being used to teach, to take these things into account? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, actually. I'm reminded of a course I undertook uh, probably last year. There's a concept called Universal Design for Learning that you might have heard of. It's called UDL. It was originally, I think, proposed by a guy called David Rose. And it's a set of principles for curriculum development that give all individuals equal opportunities to learn, including students with disabilities. And I did a course by AHEAD, who are uh, this independent nonprofit organization, which have fabulous courses on UDL. And I originally did it because I wanted to be more inclusive in what my connections were with students. But really, I learned an awful lot about myself from having done it. So just as you mentioned, Dusty, it's all about giving students an opportunity either to assimilate the information in different ways or produce learning outcomes or evidence of learning outcomes in different ways. And I'll give you an example of what I did in a minute. But what I realized about myself is I am a reader. I would much rather read a document than have to watch a video because I get so impatient watching a video. is like, go quicker, go quicker. Whereas with a document, I can scan it really quickly and know whether it's relevant or not. So I, I learned a lot about myself. But the example that, that I might give you is um, in my role, I get a lot of emails from students uh, with questions about different things. And one thing that comes up a lot is how to read their exam results. So it's not just as simple as what the, the mark is. We have codes on it. We have rules on compensating and so on. And so as part of the UDL, UDL experience, I created uh, different ways of explaining how to read your exam results. So we had uh, things like I created a Word document with Arial font because that's better for students with dyslexia. I sent the Word document, not the PDF, because then students can increase the font size if they find it easier to read. Um, I created a video, I did a voiceover and I gave the students the information in all of these different ways. And I got great feedback because, as I say, I learned myself. I have a way I like to learn. So that was really, um, you know, a new, new information for myself. So just to bring that then to how we assess students, I think things are changing. I think the idea that students can only prove that they've met the learning outcomes from writing an essay and handing it up is is quite um, old, I think, at this stage. I think lots of universities are realizing the benefit of giving students different opportunities to prove they've met the learning outcomes. And as part of a summer school that I ran uh, last year, we had students do a project on what does the future of engineering education look like? But we gave them an option to tell us that in whatever way they wanted. And we had some students who created a skit and it was really entertaining and really engaging. We had others that created um, a cartoon animation and it was absolutely fantastic. And I think just getting to that position where we're saying writing an essay is not the only way that you can prove you have met a learning outcome is really novel. So, I'm quite fascinated with a, an area of study that you have done, or I don't know whether you did it briefly or you got into it very deeply, and it's a tough one to say, uh, phenomenography, which measures how different people experience things or phenomena in different ways. And as you were saying, some people will prefer watching a video to, to reading a text. And da -da. My question is, when you're asking people, you're trying to study how people take it in, how do you measure it? That's that's a heck of a challenge in my head. How do you actually quantify and measure that? 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I suppose I would come back to say you can't measure it. So um, when I was looking at uh, the phenomenographic study that I undertook was how lecturers consider what are professional skills and how do we teach them? So you don't really ask them, what do you think professional skills are? You ask them questions around the subject and they answer it in an interview form. And then you analyze that as a kind of a detracted observer to see what are the differing ways that people experience this. So when you say um, measure it, I guess the word I would use is they revealed whatever their thoughts were through this interview process. And then I took that on board and, and wrote that up in a, a kind of a, a thesis, I guess. And one of the interesting things that I find actually in that piece of research was I was looking at the different ways that lecturers teach professional skills without asking them that question. Um, and it, it varied from things like transmitting knowledge. So where they're the expert and they're telling the students. So that's a lecture form. We're used to that. And um, also practicing where you're in a workshop like Maria mentioned and you're practicing putting the theory into practice mirroring the industry environment, those types of projects where we give students a project to do. But the top one really that came out as the overarching way of teaching professional skills was role modeling. So that was quite interesting. The fact that what a lecturer does every day and how they interact with students is a role model on how to act professionally. Maria, let me come back to you and let's kind of, I suppose it's following on from, from what Una is saying about role models and stuff like that. The whole idea of apprenticeships and working with companies here in Ireland and getting real, you know, kind of hands on and you're surrounded by the kind of people that you want to, to be like. It's one of the phrases I've heard growing up, hang out with the people you want to be like. So this whole apprenticeship thing. Um, how, how, while somebody is doing an apprenticeship, are you able to balance theory and practical experience? Yes. Uh, all apprenticeships are, the traditional apprenticeships have uh, set phases. There's seven phases in the traditional apprenticeships. Three of them are in an educational environment. So the first phase, you're out at work for a certain period of time. Then you come into an, uh, the, an EPB for 22 weeks on phase two. Then you're out at work again for around six months. Then you come back into uh, TU for uh, one semester. It's about a 12-week term. Then you go out again to industry for another six months. Then you come back in again to uh, TU for phase six. Uh, so it's a learning phase again. And then you're back out working in industry for the final phase, phase seven. So those are the traditional uh, ways in which apprenticeship have been taught, be it for carpentry, joinery, electrical, plumbing, anything like that. But there are a whole range of new apprenticeships now, and there's certain criteria. They must be between two and four years in duration, and they must have at least 50% of the time in the work environment. So there's two types really of apprenticeship that have emerged. Either somebody comes on site one to two days a week in an educational environment and does the other days at work, or they come on like you do for the traditional apprenticeship where you're a block of time and they're in an educational environment. But again, it is an in and out process. So there might be five phases or more in an apprenticeship, depending on the duration of the apprenticeship. 
and where the the apprentice is in and out of an educational environment. They're in a work environment, so it's on the job or they're off the job where they're in an educational environment and they're doing more uh, theory-based stuff. So it's a mixture and it's part of their learning experience where they're going off the job, on the job, off the job, on the job. So the two are mixing as they gain experience in their apprenticeship. So the standard traditional craft-based apprenticeship is four years, but the new apprenticeships can be anything from two to four years, depending on which level in the QQI National Framework of Qualifications uh, the apprenticeship is, and also what experience the the apprentice had before they joined the apprenticeship. It's a strange question for you, Maria. Do you think that as we continue on throughout our careers and we're fully professional engineers that we should take an apprenticeship every couple of years? I think it would be a great idea. Um, If it could be managed, I think it would be hard for somebody to be at work for two years, then go and do an apprenticeship, come back in again. I don't think it could be rigorous, but it probably could be encouraged in the workplace. But I think it would be a great idea, especially for someone like ourselves, which we're out of industry for a while, that every so often, so hence the sabbatical system that was always there um, helps and supports that. It allows academics to dip in and out of industry at regular periods to keep up to date. I know, because you often think of apprenticeship when you're in your university years, but you never think of it like when you've been placed with a firm for 10 years or you're working professionally for 10 years. And it would be great to go off and, you know, kind of, of course, I'd want to do my apprenticeship in Sydney, you see. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that idea of lifelong learning, though, Dusty, is an important one. I mean, I don't know about Maria, but after you become an engineer and you graduate, then the next step is to become chartered. So you do all of that and... I mean, in my own case, I went back and did a PhD in my 40s and I thought I was done with education way before that. And even now doing that ahead course last week or last year and so on, it's really important to keep up our skills. They talk about everyone having three careers in their lifetime and that's going to really change quite dramatically um, because there's some statistics out there that people who are at school at this stage, half of the jobs haven't even been created yet. So, you know, it's difficult for them to choose a course. So, I think recognising that that we need to be lifelong learning, uh, lifelong learners is really important. And I'm going to get a final plug in for a, a different project that I'm working on. Um, it's an Erasmus Plus uh, funded project with colleagues in KU Leuven in Belgium and LUT in Finland called TrainEng PDP. And it's all about training engineers for lifelong learning skills through a personal development process. And Engineers Ireland are actually one of the supporters of this project because we're trying to make that transition from you know, being a student, getting your degree, going out into industry, and then suddenly you're faced with, you know, continuing professional development. We're trying to make that a little bit more seamless. So we're working on some pilot interventions in the classroom with students to try to help them develop these lifelong learning skills of reflection and planning and so on um, earlier in their career than once they get out into industry. Excellent. That's a train a PDP for personal development process. Yeah. 
And uh, wh- while you're while you're out here on the podcast, just selling your wares, Una, uh, you might as well tell me about uh, Profess Twelve. You said it was a summer school. Uh, when I think of a summer school, I'm immediately thinking of myself as a little boy in the woods somewhere or whatever for a couple of weeks. Surely it's not like that. How does the summer school work? Yeah, it's a five day summer school school for ten engineering students from TU Dublin and ten engineering students from Ulster University. And we're spending two and a half days up in Belfast and two and a half days in Dublin. And we're looking at different workshops and things that we can put in place for these five days. It's going to be really intense for the students and it's an extracurricular um, activity for them. But uh, I mean, to have something like that on their CV as they go for job interviews would be fantastic. So I really, fingers crossed, it's going to go well, but planning is going well so far anyway. Grand. Uh, we'll have uh, links for those in the show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast player or phone or whatever at the moment, it's all in there in the description for you. Um, Una, th- you've kind of touched, you've both actually touched on, on a thing there where it's continuous professional development and we're getting older and kind of learning things. It must mean for you guys that the diversity of students that you're dealing with is just changing all the time. You've got people at different stages of their lives. You've got him, her, they. Um, you've got the people who want different things out of the, the career and stuff like that. How are universities keeping up with different course programs to handle this range of people? Maria? Yes. Um, we have a lot of students who do courses by by flexible learning, we call it, um, where they're taking courses at night, courses at the weekends, mostly online courses. And if you're talking about people who are doing lifelong learning, they're, a lot of them have, have a degree or are walking towards a degree. And if they have a degree, a lot of them are doing online uh, master's programs and they find that works well for them, the, the online programs. And we have been very successful on the online master's programs and a lot of international students, they like to come to Ireland to do our online master's programs. And we find they're very, we're very successful in recruiting international students for online uh, master's programs. And what is the general attitude of employers when you're looking at this additional part-time education for yourself as well as doing your job? I think um, the regional skills fora have helped because they have strengthened the link between industries and education and they have helped employers see the benefits of the lifelong learning. And they're working with employers to show them the funding streams that can support them to have their staff being uh, being further developed. So employers are all for staff getting better skills, but they just weren't aware of the funding opportunities through skills nets and other other mechanisms that were available to them to help them uh, upskill their employees. So the regional skills forum have played a huge role in helping that along over in recent years. So if I'm working in a firm and there's no real kind of clear further education or personal development uh, program and I want to suggest it, what do you think I should Google? What, what, what should I search on Google just to get more information? What, what phrase would you use? Flexible learning. Flexible learning. CPD. There we go. There CPD, go. Flexible learning. Part-time course. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Part-time courses and flexible learning. All right. Listen, um, it, it's absolutely fascinating chatting to the pair of you and getting it from uh, the point of view of people who are teaching the next generation of engineers who are coming down the line and also the engineers who are in the business at the moment. I've got one final question for each of you and it's, it's a bit of a zinger. All right. 
And I hate asking double barrel questions, but I'm going to ask you one, all right? So um, you can decide who wants to go first on this. The question is, from what you see that is coming down the line, from an engineering perspective, what do you think we should be afraid of and what should we look forward to? Okay, I'm going to start this one. Okay, I think the... What we we don't need to be afraid of anything because all the challenges we've had to face as engineers, we've been able to overcome them. So I don't envisage anything to be afraid of. Climate action may need a lot of work, but I do think we can uh, come to some solution around that. Keeping up to date with industry advances and technological advances and also the synergies between what we call our traditional engineering disciplines. That's an area we'll have to get into. In terms of the good stuff, the benefits, I think we have our collaborations with industry, with other higher education institutions, they're improving all the time. And with the global communication through accreditation and research, I think that's very positive. And I think it can only help, help us all going forward. And Una, for yourself, what do you think we should look forward to and what should we fear? Yeah, a bit like Maria, I don't think we have anything to fear. I think our experience during the COVID pandemic has showed us that we are perseverant and we have grit and we're agile. So, I mean, the only thing we know is that change is inevitable. Once we accept that, it's like, OK, what's next? So we'd see these as challenges, I think. And the thing that I'm looking forward to most, I think, and maybe Maria feels the same, I get such joy out of going to graduation and seeing the students who have been in college for three or four years come through and graduate and turn into engineers. And it's a really bright future. They're just great students. So I think that's what I'm looking forward to. They're going out into the world 30 years after I did with a whole different mindset and a whole different uh, set of attitudes towards the environment and sustainability. So that's what I'm looking forward to, to see what their impact is on our building stock and on our planet. Una Began, Head of Civil Engineering at the Technological University in Dublin and Maria Klein, Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment at the Technical University of the Shannon. Thank you both so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Dusty. You're very welcome. If you would like to find out more about what we spoke about on the podcast today, you will find notes and link details that we mentioned in the show notes area on your podcast player on your smartphone right now. And of course, you'll find more information and advanced episodes of our podcast on the website at engineersireland.ie. Our podcast today was produced by DustPod.io for Engineers Ireland. If you'd like more episodes, do click the follow button on your podcast player to get access to all of our past and future shows automatically. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening.